choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? So in that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 239 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 12, Commander Charles Conrad, Part 2. Continuing from episode 238, Pete Conrad joined NASA as part of the second group of astronauts known as the New Nine on September 17, 1962. He was regarded as one of the best pilots in the group and was among the first of his group to be assigned a Gemini mission. The Gemini was a much more capable vehicle. If you looked at the Mercury cockpit, it, it, uh, it looked a little funny. If you looked at a Gemini cockpit, it looked much more like a conventional fighter of the 1960s. We had an attitude ball. Of course, they didn't have that in Mercury. Um, and, and it had a hand controller uh, that uh, was rather conventional for hand controllers in those days. And, and we had a translation system where we were going to be able to maneuver on orbit. You could look at it as a little hot rod. I remember maneuvering around the Agena vehicle. It was uh, uh, very easy to fly. Conrad and Gordon Cooper were assigned to Gemini 5. Gemini 5 was the third manned flight in the Gemini program, and its mission was to progress toward the serious business of preparing for the moonshot. The crew were going for 121 orbits, eight days in space, the longest duration flight ever. As Conrad and Cooper waited in the capsule for the launch of Gemini 5, Gordon Cooper smiled at Pete and said, You ready, rookie? He noticed Pete was white as a sheet. Suddenly Pete said, I'm not sure, Gordo. Then there was a long, difficult pause in the silent capsule. Conrad milked it for all it was worth till he couldn't hold back his laughter anymore. Gotcha! Let's go for a ride. During the eight-day mission, the novelty of space travel ended fairly quickly. In fact, Conrad facetiously referred to the Gemini 5 capsule as a flying garbage can. Conrad was the rookie and Gordo was the pro. They had trained together for a year and there wasn't any stories left to exchange. They had some system failures and that precluded them from doing some of the tasks they were supposed to do. So all they could do was sit there. Soon Conrad's knees began to bother him. It felt as though his knee sockets had gone dry. He hurt and he didn't want to stay in there anymore. 
If he had been told he had to stay up there any longer, he might have gone crazy. Conrad's body ached, and his mind was not active enough. They couldn't go to sleep and just were not tired. Your body is uncomfortable and you don't do any work, and zero G's makes you lethargic. They didn't have continuous communications with Earth, and there was an eight-hour sleep time when the ground wouldn't talk to them. They had thruster failures on the third day, so they spent a lot of time just drifting in flight. But they did set the endurance record. The duration of the Gemini 5 flight was 7 days, 22 hours, and 55 minutes, surpassing the current Russian record of 5 days. Also, 8 days was the time required for the first manned lunar landing missions. When you're a long way out, you don't see green. Green doesn't transmit. So, see the blue of the water and the white of the clouds and the polar caps, but all the land masses are kind of rusty red, rusty brown, whatever. Don't see green from 100,000 miles out. You begin to wonder why everybody fusses around here. When we were flying, Gemini 5, the Indians and the Pakistanis were after each other. and No borders except rivers, mountains, and oceans. And uh, you wonder why they're doing that, and here we are more than 30 years later and they're sitting there aiming nukes at each other which we just finally got done getting rid of with the Russians. Life's too short for all that crap. Pete Conrad was next assigned as commander of Gemini 11 with his old friend Dick Gordon serving as pilot. Before launch Conrad received the talk by Deke Slayton and Gene Krantz. Conrad was told if Gordon was unable to get back in the ship after his EVA, Conrad was ordered to close the door and leave him there. So only one man would be lost, not two. This weighed heavily on Pete. Chimney 11 successfully docked with the Agena target vehicle immediately after achieving orbit. Such a maneuver was an engineering flight test similar to what the Apollo command module and lunar module would later be required to do. Dick Gordon's first EVA involved fastening a 100-foot tether stored in the Agena's docking collar to the Gemini's docking bar for the passive stabilization experiment. But the EVA was not going well. Dick's heart rate was at 150. He was out of breath sweat dripping into his eyes and fogging his faceplate, and he was dangling on a string outside Gemini 11, 161 miles over the earth. The capsule was spinning slowly, trying to wrap the tether around itself where they were docked with the Agena. Gordon had to constantly fuss with it, and in the design phase, it was never considered how hard it was to grab onto a smooth spinning metal surface with thick space gloves and boots while trying to run a cordless ratchet wrench. Now, for the first time since he had been an astronaut, Pete Conrad got scared. He radioed Gordon. 
What do you say we call it a day, huh? Gordon replied, No, I can get it. Gordon grunted, cussing under his breath as he gutted through the checklist. He wrapped the slack in the tether around the Agena's docking bar and across the adapter segment. It did help, but he was clearly struggling out there. Pete winced at the wrapping of the tether. If they started spinning any faster, that thing would tangle and Dick might not be able to get out of it. And if he couldn't, that would mean Pete would have to close the door and leave him there. Finally, Pete's nerves had had enough, and he ordered Gordon to get back into the capsule. No one was getting left behind on Conrad's flight. The crew completed the flight with no further incidents, and Command Pilot Conrad lined them up for a pinpoint re-entry and nailed their landing in the West Atlantic after a three-day flight. Next, Pete Conrad was assigned in December 1966 to command the backup crew for the first Earth orbital test flight of the complete Apollo spacecraft, including Lunar Module, into low Earth orbit. But delays in the Lunar Module's development pushed that mission to December 1968 as Apollo 8. But when one more delay occurred in readying the first lunar module for manned flight, NASA approved and scheduled a lunar orbit mission without the lunar module as Apollo 8, pushing Conrad's backup mission to Apollo 9 in March 1969. Director of Flight Crew Operations Deke Slayton's practice was to assign a backup crew as the prime crew on the third following mission. If the swap of Apollo 8 and 9 had not occurred, Conrad might have commanded Apollo 11, the first mission to land on the moon. But instead, Conrad was selected as commander for Apollo 12. Getting back to the immediate future of space travel, Pete Conrad, the Apollo 12 commander, recently gave David Shoemaker this answer as to how it would feel to be a historical footnote as the third man on the moon. Well, I think that's really great myself. Uh, uh, like anybody in the office, I would have uh, loved to have been the first man on the moon, but I'm not sure that after I was the first man on the moon, I would want to uh, have to suffer all the things that Neil's going to have to suffer and Buzz and Mike uh, uh, for the rest of their lives. and. Uh, and uh, our, our business really is the flying end, and I don't think any of us are here for the fame and glory. And, and so uh, I'm quite happy to have the second flight. And like every flight in the program, the next flight uh, really is doing something more and different. So there is no such thing as a bad flight anywhere in the program as far as we're concerned. On November 14, 1969, Apollo 12 was launched with Conrad as commander, Dick Gordon as command module pilot, and Alan Bean as Lunar Module Pilot. The launch was the most horroring of the Apollo program as a series of lightning strikes just after liftoff temporarily knocked out power and guidance in the command module. Conrad, with his hand on the abort handle, was ready to activate the escape system if needed. But very quick action by Mission Control and the crew got power restored and the mission of Apollo 12 continued. 
After they got to the moon, Conrad made a pinpoint landing within walking distance of the Surveyor 3 spacecraft, which was one of the goals of the mission. Everyone now wondered what would Conrad's first words be as he stepped onto the lunar surface. After stepping off the bottom rung of the lunar module ladder, Conrad joked about his own small stature by remarking, Whoopee, man, that may have been a small one for Neil, but that's a long one for me. His remarks boomed over the speakers in Mission Control and were met with the usual response of those in Conrad's presence. Big belly laughs. Yep, that was Pete up there, the one and only. Conrad later revealed that he said this in order to win a bet he had made with the Italian journalist Oriana Falacci for $500 to prove that NASA did not script astronauts' comments. Falacci was convinced that Armstrong's One Small Step for Man speech had been written for him and were not his own words. In actuality, Conrad's Long One and Armstrong's Small Step referred to two different actions. Conrad was talking about going from the ladder down to the landing pad. Armstrong was talking about stepping horizontally off the pad onto the lunar surface. Actually, Conrad's words for stepping onto the moon were, Ooh, is that soft and queasy? The Apollo 12 mission was pure Conrad, fun and relatively glitch-free, except for Alan Bean accidentally pointing the TV camera directly into the sun, which ended the TV coverage. When it was time to leave the moon, in a very gracious action, Conrad allowed Alan Bean to fly the ascent stage off the moon. This was the only time that occurred during the Apollo program. After Apollo 12, Conrad became heavily involved in Skylab. Skylab had to be designed and built from scratch or adapted from Apollo and it had to be done for about one-tenth of the cost of a flight from that program. The limits made it a challenge for Pete, and it was, without a question, the most fun Conrad had ever had. Drawing, building, welding, wiring, testing, then throwing it away and starting again. Well, Skylab is the name given to an older program that we had called Apollo Applications, and we have attempted to take Apollo hardware and make a prototype space station with it. And in doing so, we took uh, the third stage of a Saturn V and we've made it into an orbiting laboratory and we had to add on top of that uh, some other equipment. We had to put a structure that we could dock with and we needed to go outside because we were going to have a solar telescope on it and we needed to go outside to the solar telescope to take the film out and load the cameras again. This whole total vehicle has been called Skylab, and it's really the United States' first attempt at a orbiting space station, and we hope to gain knowledge from it that tells us, one, that man can live for extended periods of time in space. And while he's doing that, or proving that, we have this solar telescope, which will be able to view the sun in uh, an area uh, with the instruments that you can't do it from the ground because uh, the atmosphere filters out these various wavelengths that they would like to study the sun with.
And then our third major thing are our Earth Resources Experiments, where we're going to observe the ground with a multitude of instruments that will help the hydrologist, the agriculturalist, and the forestry man, and, uh, and a great deal of other people that are interested in natural resources. Then along with that, those three major objectives, we have about 50 colliery experiments on board, uh, some of which are more sophisticated experiments of the type that we ran in Gemini. Uh, we're still trying to learn a great deal about our Earth and its atmosphere, so we're going to do UV photography of the upper atmosphere. We're trying to determine exactly the mechanism that happens in the upper atmosphere. We're going to do UV photography on the stars, and we did a great deal of that in Gemini. And uh, by doing this, uh, the type instruments that we are using, uh, we are able to integrate man into, uh, into uh, making real-time decisions on exactly how to take the, uh, uh, the pictures and so forth of the star fields. Of course, uh, these again are pictures that could not be taken on Earth because the atmosphere filters out the UV. We have a maneuvering unit on board. We need to find out uh, just how well man can fly around with a little maneuvering unit and our vehicle's big enough to do it inside rather than venture outside for the first time. These things have applications for future space stations, uh, such as the kind of space station you could build with the shuttle. Uh, Along with those experiments, of course, uh, we are engineering-wise looking at the habitability of this space station and how well we adapt to it and how we would design it better uh, for a permanent space station. And that pretty well sums up Skylab. During Skylab's launch, the Saturn V's shake, rattle, and roll ripped away a portion of the micrometeorite shield that surrounded the exterior of the Skylab workshop, which tore away one of only two solar panels and a piece of the shield wrapped around the other, preventing its opening. With no solar panels, Skylab had no way to power itself other than its batteries, and with the shield gone, Skylab began overheating immediately after going into orbit. When the data started rolling in, the cabin temperature was climbing past 150 degrees. If the bulkhead material started to melt, the pressure integrity of Skylab would be compromised. This would be life-threatening to a crew, the ship, and the future of America's manned spaceflight program. Fortunately, the Apollo telescope mount, which was the big science that got this spacecraft funded, to begin with, was working. For Conrad's fourth space mission, he and his crew repaired the damaged Skylab during two space walks. Conrad managed to pull free the stuck solar panel by sheer brute force, an action of which he was particularly proud. The astronauts also erected a parasol solar shield to protect the space station from intense solar heating a function which the lost micrometeoroid shield was supposed to perform. Without the shield, Skylab and its contents would have become unusable. Conrad and crew spent 28 days in Skylab. Pete Conrad retired from NASA and the Navy in 1973 and went to work for American Television and Communications Company. 
He started as the Vice President of Operations and Chief Operating Officer. Conrad was in charge of the operation of existing systems and the national development of new cable television systems. In 1976, Conrad accepted a position with McDonnell Douglas as a Vice President and Consultant. In 78, he became Vice President of Marketing and was responsible for the commercial and military sales of the Douglas Aircraft Company. In 1979, an engine fell off a McDonnell Douglas DC-10, causing it to crash with the loss of all passengers and crew. Conrad spearheaded McDonnell Douglas's ultimately unsuccessful effort to allay the fears of public and policymakers and save the plane's reputation. In 1980, Conrad was promoted to Senior Vice President of Marketing, and from 82 to 84, Conrad served as the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Product Support. He was appointed Staff Vice President of International Business Development in 1984. During the 1990s, Conrad consulted for the Delta Clipper Experimental Single Stage to Orbit Launch Vehicle. He became Vice President of Project Development in 1993. On February 14, 1996, Conrad was part of the crew on a record-breaking around-the-world flight in a Learjet owned by cable TV pioneer Bill Daniels. The flight lasted 49 hours, 26 minutes, and 8 seconds. Today, the jet is on permanent static display at Denver International Airport's Terminal C. In the last interview he gave before his death, Conrad sat down for PBS's Nova series and discussed where he felt the future direction of space travel should go. He considered returning to the moon a waste of taxpayer money, but recommended missions to Mars and asteroids. Now for a little more on Pete Conrad's personal life. Pete and Jane DuBose were married in June of 1953. They had four sons, Peter, born in 1954, Thomas, born in 1957, Andrew, born in 1959, and the youngest, Christopher, born in 1960. Given the demands of his career in the Navy and NASA, Pete and Jane spent a great deal of time apart, and Pete saw less of his boys growing up than he would have liked. Even after he retired from NASA and the Navy, he kept himself busy. In 1988, Pete and Jane divorced. And in 1989, Conrad's youngest son, Christopher, was stricken with a malignant lymphoma. He died in April 1990 at the age of 29. Conrad met Nancy Crane, a Denver, Colorado divorcee, through mutual friends. Conrad and Crane married in 1990. Nine years later, on July 8, 1999, Pete Conrad died from internal injuries sustained in a motorcycle accident while traveling from his Huntington Beach home to Monterey, California. No one knows for sure 
what happened on that last curve on Highway 150 just outside of Ojai. Pete wasn't going very fast. He was wearing a helmet and there was no collision. One of the riders he had joined up with saw him lean into his turn, then straighten up suddenly, heading for the shoulder. The gravel and dirt gave way instantly to a ditch, but there was no way he could have seen that. The bike went down. He wrangled it back up like it was his favorite horse at the ranch, but he was hurt. The bike went left and Pete went right, landing hard on his chest. Pete was taken to a small community hospital, fully conscious, with what appeared to be a minor chest injury. That was the first mistake. He should have gone to a trauma center. He had to wait and wait for treatment, which caused him to deteriorate fast. By the time attending physicians realized the seriousness of the situation, it was too late. When Nancy arrived at 3 o'clock, he was in grave condition. He died on the operating table two hours later. Pete Conrad was 69 years old. He was buried with full military honors at Arlington National Cemetery. Thousands came to pay their respects, from senators and Hollywood types to corporate heads, children, teachers, and blue-collar workers. Neil Armstrong spoke, as did Dick Gordon, Jim Lovell, Al Bean, NASA Administrator Dan Golan, and Congressman Dana Robacher. Willie Nelson, singer and songwriter of Pete's favorite country tunes, interrupted his tour and drove his bus down from Maine to sing Amazing Grace. Pete's headstone reads simply, An Original. During his life, Conrad was a fellow of the American Astronautical Society, the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and the Society of Experimental Test Pilots. He was given numerous awards and honors. Here are a few. Two Navy Distinguished Service Medals, two Distinguished Flying Crosses, a Congressional Space Medal of Honor, two NASA Distinguished Service Medals, two NASA Exceptional Service Medals, the Yuri Gagarin Gold Space Medal, Collier Trophy, Harmon Trophy, Thompson Trophy. He was inducted into several aviation and astronaut halls of fame. He was presented an honorary Master of Arts degree from Princeton in 1966, an honorary Doctorate of Law degree from Lincoln Wesleyan University in 1970, and an honorary Doctorate of Science degree from King's College, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, in 1971. In closing, NASA dedicated a section of land at Johnson Space Center to the memory of the astronauts who have departed this life, whether from old age, accident, illness, or in the line of duty. For each astronaut, a tree is planted, and there is, of course, a ceremony when a new one is added to the grove. As you can imagine, the ceremonies are fairly reflective, sometimes somber events. When they dedicated Pete's tree, his beloved friend and Apollo 12 crewmate, Al Bean, decided that Pete should be the one determining the tone of the day. When Al took the podium, he channeled 
the spirit of Pete, which itself is a bit of a departure at a NASA ceremony. No one had laughed at one of these ceremonies before or since, but they surely did this day, and Pete would have had it no other way. Pete had just one message to transmit from across the universal divide through Al, and it was for NASA Administrator George Abey. He thought it would be just a fine idea to light those trees at Christmas time, and reminding us all that his motto had been, If you can't be good, be colorful. Pete further suggested, well, no, he insisted that all those lights be white except his. And if you visit Johnson Space Center during the holidays, you will be pleased to note that NASA kept his promise to Pete Conrad, for among all the brilliant white shining trees reminding us of the lives and spirits of the men and women who have flown into space and then moved on from this life, only one shines with red bulbs, and this is as it should be. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 239 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 12, Commander Charles Conrad, Part 2. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. In case you haven't heard, the first 38 episodes of the podcast are available on the Space Rocket History Archive podcast. This means the first 38 episodes are once again available on iTunes, Stitchers, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. To find the archive episodes, search for Space Rocket History Archive. Hopefully I'll get a few more put up for this month before I reach my maximum. Today, we salute my Rocket Emoji donors. These donors have donated for at least two years in a row and received a Rocket Emoji next to their name on the donors list. Thank you very much, Rocket Emoji donors, for your continued support. I had a few thoughts about this week's episode. I was very sad to hear, first of all, that we lost another moonwalker, and that was John Young, last week. I think it would be appropriate to post his biography next week. So I will post that encore presentation of John Young's biography Thursday instead of the next Apollo 12 episode. I need a little bit of time to get down to Alabama anyway. So that's what we'll do next week. Want to give credit to the book Rocket Man by Nancy Conrad and Howard Klausner. I use this book heavily in this week's episode. If you get a chance, you should read that one. It's a good one. Going back to the Gemini 11 mission, what do you think Conrad would have done if Gordon couldn't get back inside the Gemini 11 capsule on his own? 
Would he have disobeyed orders and tried to save Gordon? Or would he have followed the procedure and closed the hatch and cut Gordon loose and saved the ship and himself, leaving his best friend to die up there alone? Would he have followed the direct order to do that? When I think about it, I doubt it very seriously that he would have left him up there and not tried something. I can imagine him doing all kinds of things, opening up his door and going after him. I just don't think he would have left him there. And uh, the book, Rocket Man, does tend to back up that opinion, too. I'm really glad it didn't happen, but uh, that would have been a tough order to follow, especially when it's your best friend out there. Now, I mentioned that after NASA... Conrad was involved in the Delta Clipper X project. Google that one, and you can watch some of the flights. That thing had some promise. I hate they ended that in 1996, but that was a mighty impressive uh, video of the thing flying. And of course, sometimes it blew up, but most of them do (laughs) at some point. But That was pretty good, the Delta Clipper X. It was really sad that Pete died so early. He was 69. I think he had a lot of life in him. And uh, it was a motorcycle accident where nobody actually knows for sure exactly what happened. He wasn't speeding, and there was no other vehicle involved, so I guess we can only guess. But really, the sad part, the worst part is that he wasn't treated quickly enough. He may have survived that accident had he been treated sooner for his internal injuries. That that was just a shame to sit there in the emergency room and wait and not get treated. And that's probably what cost him his life. Okay, I have posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on my homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Matthew P. from Minnesota donated at the Soyuz level and earned his rocket emoji. Leif C. donated at the Vostok level and earned his moon emoji. Paul S. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level with rocket emoji. And Christoph Z. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level and earned his moon emoji. The grandsons, Luke, Josh, Zach, and Evan... Came in at the Sputnik level. Thank you, grandsons. (laughs) We have uh, reached 154 Patreons now, with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. And our overall donors for 2018 have reached 161, with a goal of reaching 418. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet, Please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. There are three easy ways to make a donation. You can go to the homepage and click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation. Or, if you prefer, you can become my patron at Patreon by clicking on the Patreon link below the orange Donate button on the homepage. Or you can mail me a check. To do that, just email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and I will give you my address. 
For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I certainly appreciate it. I have an item to give away. This week, it is the official Space Rocket History logo vinyl refrigerator magnet. It has a picture of the logo on it, and it's nice. To to select the winner, I gave every donor a number. I put the range in Google's random number generator and got the number four, David Fisher. David, if you would email me, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. I was pleased to see the podcast received two new five-star ratings on iTunes this week. These were anonymous, so whoever did that, I certainly do appreciate you giving the podcast the all-important five-star rating. This is the end of content for this episode. You're welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode next week. Once again, we will have the encore presentation of John Young's biography. And then once we get back to Apollo 12 the following week, Hopefully we can make a long stride of episodes up to 250. In personal news, we are planning on leaving for Alabama in a few days and visit Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville. I want to thank Chris H. who sent me an email and recommended visiting the Unclaimed Baggage Center in Scottsboro, Alabama. It has the Unclaimed Airline Baggage. A lot of bargains there, so... We'll go check that out for sure. And I would like to thank Jan P. for mentioning the RUAG Space Company in Decatur to visit. We'll check that one out. And if you have any additional places to visit in Alabama, please feel free to email me and we'll see what we can do. Maybe we'll get an opportunity to check those out as well. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all I have for this week. Hope to have the Encore episode posted by next Thursday. And so long for now.